Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 26. Today's guest is Mandy Thomas. Mandy is a U.S. Army veteran. She was trained as an interrogator and also attended language school to learn Russian. After leaving the Army, Mandy spent 12 years as a stay-at-home mom. She attended school, started personal training, and then moved on to become a firefighter. She's a fierce mental health advocate and hopes to one day work full-time for a nonprofit organization helping first responders. Steady, steady, nice and steady. Light, heel, cover. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. So you better get out of my way now. So you better get out of my way now. Before I roll all over you. Before I roll all over you. All right. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm super excited to interview you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Come on. It's been a while. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Minot, North Dakota. My dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a bit. Um, But I grew up in a little town called Tularosa, New Mexico, which is near El Paso, Texas. Okay. And what was your childhood like? What sort of activities were you involved in? Um, so my brother and I are 13 months apart. He was older and, um, he and I were very active kids. Um, I was in every single sport I could get my hands on in middle school and all through high school. Um, so mostly it was either me doing athletics, me working at how at the house with my family or, um, trying not to annoy my brother too much. Sounds like me. I was not, you know, I didn't, focus on one sport and try to excel at that. I just wanted to try as many different ones as I could. I did too. And it, you know, you grew up in a small town and there's not really there much for you to do. It was like 20 miles to like the biggest city where our mall was and um, where they had a movie theater. And so, you know, it really was just us riding our bikes around the town and, you know, coming home when the lights came on. And uh, yeah, I went from one sport to another, volleyball, basketball, track, and then softball in the summer. Yeah, back in the days before there was YouTube and Netflix and all these other things to occupy our time. Absolutely. No no cell phones. I didn't have my first cell phone until I was 20. Yes. I mean, I'm thinking, I was trying to think when I had mine, I think it was probably the last year in high school, but there was no, you know, if you wanted to send a text, it was like a dollar and you had to click each button three times to get one letter. So it wasn't the same as it is now. Yeah. And so what did your father do in the military? My dad, he was a mechanic for the most part, but he, he excelled in it. So he was a first sergeant of the stealth fighter squadron. So they were called the black sheep. And um, that was a majority of uh, my high school times was he was in charge of the stealth bombers. Oh, that's actually really interesting. So did that sort of plant the bug in your head to want to join the military? It did not. I actually did not have a good relationship with my father growing up. He was very strict, um, deployed a lot, and um, he brought work home with him a lot. And my brother and I were just, you know, your average, you know, pain in the ass kids. But, you know, we had good hearts and we really did work hard with our family. Um, And my dad didn't know how to separate you know, being in charge of an entire squadron of people to now let me come home to my kids and just kind of relax and just enjoy them. 
Um, so I didn't want anything to do with the military. But my town was so small that there was an opportunity for me to get a scholarship. I wasn't terrible in school, but you know, I was an AB student but there just were no scholarships available to me. I didn't really have the push for that. So once I graduated, I did a couple of jobs. I put myself through and paid for one college class. And then I was like, I'm not going to be able to get out of this town. And I need to, because a lot of people, you know, still live there or close to there. My brother's actually a an undercover narcotics agent in the town that we grew up in, which is awesome. But um, there wasn't just that opportunity for me and I didn't have any ambition or drive. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into the army. Yeah. So I was going to ask when you were growing up, did you have any specific jobs that you wanted to be when you grew up? I did. I, when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a marine biologist and then I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then um in high school, I wanted to be OSI in the Air Force, which is kind of like an undercover investigator. It's Office of Special Investigations after watching the movie The General's Daughter. And um, I, I picked a job kind of close to that, actually. So it that, that came for full circle, I think. Okay, so um, explain to me like your process of joining the military and what job you picked. So um, when I... I, I w- it's funny because I was super athletic in high school, but I couldn't do three push-ups going into army boot camp. Um, I didn't really know how to work out. You know, I would just play sports and that's how I got my physical activity. Um, so I bought, um, it's, you know, the P90X videotape. So I bought the original Power 90 with Tony Horton. And I did that every single day for about three months. And then I went to my recruiter's office and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to get out of my hometown and do something. And so I was flipping through the book until I saw human intelligence collector. And I told him, that sounds really cool. I want to do that. And he said, well, there is, you have to take a language aptitude test in order to do this job because a language, learning a language is a requirement once you get it. He's like, and we haven't had anybody pass it yet. And I was like, well, I'll think of a plan B if I fail it. Um, And I ended up being the first person in my hometown to pass it. So. So what sort of things were on the test? So the army made up this language or this test, I think back in the 60s, and it was just to see how capable you were of learning a language. There were, it, it really was nonsense. And I'm, I thought I had failed it, but it's just, there's rules required in language and there's, um, you know, how you can compare things. And um, it, it's super hard to explain, but it's just kind of, learning how to make sense of something that's nonsensical. That's all I can. It it was, it was wild. It was one of the weirdest tests I've ever taken and somehow I made it. Interesting. Okay. And then, so did you get to pick which language you got to learn? So the army is the only branch where you don't get to pick the other ones you can request, you know, I think up to three languages and they pick which one they want you to do, but based on how high I scored, um, that's where I was placed in Russian, which is the, the the hardest one is Mandarin Chinese. And that's, they call it a cat five. So there's cat one, which is like French and Spanish, and then a cat five. And they needed more people in Russian. 
And so they lowered Russian to a category four. And that's what I was put in, which was awesome because I loved Rocky Four since I was a little girl and was totally in love with Ivan Drago and have wanted to learn the language. And that's what I was put in. Oh, that was going to be my next question. How did you feel about getting assigned Russian? I was stoked. I was so stoked. I I really didn't want um, Arabic. I wanted something that um, I thought I could use once I got out of the army. Mm-hmm. And so how difficult was it to learn and what did the instruction process look like? It was terrible. It was the most stressful school I've ever been to. It was eight hours a day, five days a week for a year. And um, in fact, it was so stressful that I quit smoking like two months into the class because it was the only thing that I could control. Um, But uh, Russian is, it fully relies on grammar. So there are rules to every single language. And, you know, based on what verb you're using, it changes the ending of, you know, everything that follows. Um, And so it was really intense. And with me being an interrogator, I had to score higher on the test at the end of the class um, in conversation. So we would go to school for four hours, we would have a 30 minute lunch, and then the interrogators that were all in the Russian course um, had to go sit in a room with our teachers and speak only in Russian for the next 30 minutes. And then, you know, the last four hours of the class was the entire class again. Yeah, so I guess even just conversational in your second language would be difficult, but then having to do an interrogation would just add so many more levels to that. There's so much more going on in your head that you have to think about during an interrogation and then sort of translating that to another language would just be insane. Absolutely. Because interrogation in and of itself, you know, going through that school was tough because it's always the, you know, you're connecting dots. And I'm really good at that now. I I like to network and I call myself an unprofessional dot connector. But, um, you know, you always have to ask, well, what else and who else? And then, you know, you just have to really dig and dig and dig and just create all of these branches, you know, off of this one question that you want to be asked. So having to translate that, which is difficult enough to do in English to a completely separate language and use the right conjugation on everything. Um, it was extremely difficult. And and I remember being in school um, near the end of the course, and that's when the tragedy in Beslan happened, where these terrorists came into this elementary school and trapped all of these teachers and students in a gym. And they ended up killing every single one of them. But, you know, our teachers were all native Russians. So that was very near and dear to them. So that's really all we talked about. We either talked about that or we talked about, um, you know, Karzai was campaigning to be the president of, of Afghanistan at that time. And so we were talking about these terrorists taking over a school in Beslan and we were talking about the possible, you know, new Afghani president. And, you know, it, like I said, it's hard to keep up in English, let alone in Russian. Yeah. And so did you retain any of those language skills to this day? So I, I can speak like an elementary kid. Like I'm, you know, I speak very slow. Um, I, I didn't lose the language because I loved it enough. Um, and my ex-husband and I, um, about eight years after I got out of the army, we were actually able to go do a contract in Russia um, and use our skills there. Um, but I haven't spoken fluent Russian since... Um, well, I got out in the army of 2006 and then um, 
our contract was in 2014. And then it's just been me, you know, kind of translating things in my head. And now my fiance wants to learn Russian so we can, you know, conversate and, and teach his daughter Russian. So we're kind of, I'm relearning it as he's learning it. So it's, you know, the best way to learn is to, to teach. Yeah, I feel like it would be really interesting now because of everything that's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, you see social media posts and it would be helpful to read Russian news and see what they're saying on that side and read the Ukrainian news and be able to to understand what they're saying. Yeah, the funny thing is we were just watching um, a Netflix special a couple of days ago where David Letterman interviewed the president of Ukraine. And Ukraine is very close to Russian with some different words and, you know, but it's still, you know, the Cyrillic language. And um, that's, he was like, I, I, I've always wanted to learn it. I'm going to learn it. So he got on uh, Duolingo yesterday. It's it's nice to learn it, relearn it, and to be able to take something that meant so much to me in my younger life and apply it again. And I don't know, maybe you know, do some translation on the side, some document translation or whatever. Again, would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. And I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast at one point where he was talking about learning languages and he was saying that essentially that's one of the best things that you can do to sort of exercise your brain and keep your brain sharp is to learn another language. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it completely changes the way you, you conversate with somebody because you, you know, it's so precise and, you know, um, Russian's extremely difficult because, you know, um, really in the English language, I, I was telling my fiance, Nick, I was like, English is is easy when it comes to the syllable you stress on because it's normally the first one. The first vowel is where the inflection is. And in Russian, one word, there's a word. This is so funny, but piece it, where the inflection is on the first vowel, is to write, I think, or it's to pee. One of them's to write and one of them's to pee, but it's piece, piece it and pasat. And so the, if the inflection is on the first vowel or the second vowel, you're either writing or you're peeing. So it's very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that would be a, a very important distinction to make in a conversation. I always get stuck in these like YouTube wormholes sometimes. And there are th some guys on there that can speak so many languages. And it's just, I'm always curious about what part of the brain that is or what allows someone to be able to learn all these multiple languages so fast. But in Europe, I mean, it's normal for them to be fluent in four or five languages, whereas over here, it's like, you're special if you can speak two languages. Correct. And not only that, but a lot of European countries know way more about our history than we do. You know, they're interested. And it's it's just something where that they, you know, they have an interest in, whereas we are stuck in this little bubble and only what's in front of us. And so we can be really ignorant to other countries and cultures. And I really like that, um, you know, the Eastern countries, they really want to know more. They want to better themselves. They want to be able to conversate and travel, like travel is really big over there. So of course you would want to know another language. And it's something I've always been envious of. Yeah, yeah. You just get such a different experience if you could speak the language of a country that you're visiting. You just get so much more immersed in that culture and have a totally different experience than if you can't speak their language at all. Absolutely. And it's it's just a form of respect. Like I'm sure, you know, it's easy for 
us to have people to come over to America and be like, ah, why don't you speak English? You know, but people want to travel overseas all the time and they don't know what the hell they're saying. It's like, okay, hypocrite. Um, You know, so I'm sure that people really appreciate it, even if we speak like we're five years old to take the time and at least learn the language or the culture of where we want to travel. Yeah, for sure. So going back, talk to me about being an interrogator. What was the training for that like? It was a 16-week course in Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And um, I, I mean, the funny thing about it is, pe- you know, people think it's you know so secretive, but really you could probably Google our entire course online. But, you know, we had to learn land navigation because sometimes, you know, or a majority of the time when, when interrogators would go out with, you know, on deployments, they were going out with these people and catching them in country or in, you know, whatever city. So we would have to know land navigation, you know, we had to know really just how to connect dots and how to sift through body language, which, you know, we didn't touch base on that a lot, but enough and how to tell if somebody's lying by redirecting questions just in a completely different way that they don't know that they're being asked the same question. And the one thing that got me near the end really was the follow-up questions. Like there really is never enough what else is or who else is or that sort of thing. So that course wasn't really hard for me. It was just, you know, coming right out of basic training and then still kind of being in basic training and having to go to school, but not really having a life outside of, you know, cleaning your room and earning privileges. Um, so it wasn't that difficult. And, you know, it was very much like being at home because I grew up in New Mexico. Yeah, my, I think my all the stress really started for me once I went to Russian and then right after I went to airborne school and then to my unit. So for the interrogations, if you were to do an exercise or practice things in class, what would be the longest amount of time that you've ever spent on an interrogation? Oh, gosh. Well, we had this civilian chick in there that would pretend to be like a, you know, a prisoner of war, whoever we were interrogating. And she, um, she could have people in there for six or seven hours, just freaking running them around, just giving them not real, like, absolutely no information when really you're just sticking to the subject matter and not letting the person you're interrogating take you off on a completely different subject because you're so caught up in getting all of this information that by the time you look at your papers, you know, you have zero of what you were looking for. So, you know, the hardest part was when it was like, okay, today's interrogation day. So we're going to go into this booth and, you know, we're going to have, you know, certain documents that tell us, you know, where divisions are and where, you know, personnel are and um, all the different types of military nomenclature of like tanks and, you know, weaponry um, and keeping track of that while trying to herd your cat was the most difficult part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess showing them or not showing them that you're getting frustrated or that you're having trouble keeping things straight as well would be a big thing. Yeah. And a lot of times, so there are different approaches to interrogation where you, in a short amount of time, try to learn what that, what about that person and their personality is going to make it easier for you to get information. So does this person like to talk about themselves? So do do you need to, you know, build this person's ego up so they really, you know, just want to divulge all this information so they can show off to you? Or, you know, are they a little bit more timid and um, 
frightened, you know, do you need to be a little more aggressive? So that was really fun to watch, you know, our instructors play those roles. And that was, that was really interesting. What was your favorite approach to do? The pride. So it's called pride and ego up where you just let, you just let this person talk about themselves. I'm not an aggressive person. I, I don't like to be angry. Um, I never really tried that approach, but I, for one, I always like to build people up anyway. So it's kind of natural for me to just be like, oh, well, tell me more about yourself, you know? And, and so that was my favorite because I think I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, it was interesting reading um, uh, McRaven's book and he was talking about how when they had captured Saddam and he would kind of go into the room occasionally and Saddam learned that he was this important guy and kept trying to get his attention. So it was it's kind of the opposite. They were doing a bit of an ego down for Saddam because as soon as he got captured, he was like, well, I'm Saddam Hussein and, you know, you must treat me like this and that. And they were just like, no, no, we need to knock you down a few pegs. Yeah. And that's a, that's another good one is pride and ego down is where you can take people down a notch, which is, that was brilliant on their part. And then, so after you mentioned that you went to airborne school, so was that a requirement or did you choose to do that? No, while I was in Russian, um, about three months prior to graduation, they said, Hey, um, they're giving out bonuses for any Russian linguists that want to go to airborne school. And it took me you know, less than a second to raise my hand for that even though I'm terrified of heights, like we're talking like really, 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 I can't go on a Ferris wheel. Um, but you know, and, and I was also on a tower truck, you know, here in the fire department for a couple of years, but yeah, I was extremely afraid of heights and I just looked at it as a challenge and, you know, it's an extra three grand in my pocket. Why not? And did you find it different jumping out of the plane? Like, did you find that height fear of height sense activated or was it not the same? So it wasn't, it wasn't the same. I mean, it's all tall, no matter what, there's just a fear. It's not really the fear of falling. It's the fear of, you know, hitting the ground. So um, what normally happens in airborne school is you practice jumping off of these 30 foot towers. And then you go to these 250 foot towers that just kind of take you up in your parachute and then drop you and you learn to land. But the weather was so bad because I went in December, they wouldn't let us jump from the 250 towers. So we went straight from the 30 foot to the sky. And they always put the females in, they call them sticks. So it's like a platoon, you know, you have nine, 10 people in the back of the airplane, which I never understood because we're normally lighter and we take forever to go to the ground. So I thought they would make us jump first, but so we were always in the back of the airplane. And I remember that the um, the commander of Charlie Company, he was just this big, jolly guy. He could tell I was completely afraid every time I boarded the back of the plane. And in airborne school, you have a number and that's all you're known by. You're not known by your name, your rank, nothing. And my number was six, five. And I remember I was still in the last of my stick and I'm going up the ramp and he grabs me by by Kevlar. And he said, I got something for you, six, five. And I knew he was going to make me go to the front of the the front of the stick, which means I had to look outside and see where everything was. And with tears in my eyes, I'm like, no, sir, please do not. And he's like, no, no, we're going to make it happen. So what changed for me is, and I think this was on my third or fourth jump, and we had to do, I think, 10 it was. Um, so I'm sitting there at the door and tears are just streaming down my face and I'm trying not to look outside. But at a point you have to stand up and look out, you know, you hand them your static line. 
And so I remember turning and facing, you know, the outside world outside of the plane and it just got quiet and beautiful because everything slowed down. You know, you're not just seeing, you know, the shit in the windows as you're going up. And I just remember looking at the tops of the tree line and just, you know, just being grateful and just thinking of how peaceful it was. And it, that changed everything. And with those parachutes, how much control do you actually have when you're going down? So I don't remember what types of parachutes we had at the time, but they weren't the super speed ones that we have now. I think they were T10s or something like that. Um, not you, you have enough control to not kill yourself, but, um, you know, based on wind and how heavy you are and your depth perception on how close you are to the ground, you have, you have enough control to get to the ground safely. Right. And how rough are the landings? extremely rough. Oh yeah. It was, um, you know, they call it a parachute landing fall, a PLF. Um, but most of the time you're really just trying to, so you fall from your ankles to your knees, to your hips, and then you do this kind of like sideward somersault and it's not comfortable at all. And, you know, based on the terrain, you know, we had people break ankles. We had a guy wrap his static line around his forearm and ripped his muscle all the way down to his wrist. Um, so people definitely got hurt. Um, I did not, um, it wasn't an, an easy landing. You know, I weighed about 40 pounds more than I do now. Um, but it's still fun. It's still a rush when you get up and you're just like, oh, I'm good. You know, you check yourself and yeah. So I see videos of, obviously there's so many on Instagram, but there's some, some very rough looking landings with the military, like static line. Oh, absolutely. It's, it really just depends on, you know, weather, terrain, you know, how high up you are. You know, I know a lot of the, um, the airborne units, um, you know, they fly it much lower. Um, and depending on how much shit you're carrying. So what were the altitudes that you jumped from on your course? I think, I think ours were 1200. And I think, um, not my unit, but um, the 82nd, I think they would jump at eight. So it's it a big difference. Yeah. When you think of civilian skydiving, you know, your first one, if you were to do your first jump course, which is instructor deployed parachute, like that's 3,500 feet and that seems low. And then, you know, going up to 10,000 and that's just, I mean, it doesn't even activate your fear of heights. I find it's just like looking at a map. Yes. Yeah, it is. And, and honestly, once you, you reach a certain height, it's all the same. And so after airborne school, then where did you go? That's when I went to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina with the 6th PSYOP Battalion and was at attached to a PSYOP unit, not an interrogator unit. Um, and that was, that was really rough for me. Um, I was attached to a headquarter unit um, which basically means I was in charge of paperwork. I was, you know, in an S2 shop, um, giving people clearances and visas. So there was, you know, there was one more interrogator in the headquarters with me that I went to Russian with, and I actually went to interrogation school in basic with, but um, I wasn't doing my job. And um, I was really depressed and frustrated because all I wanted, you know, all we want to do is deploy. We want to get out there. And, um, you know, I'm, I don't regret it, but I jumped my chain of command and went to the, you know, the four PSYOP group who was in, you know, in charge of our battalion and said, you know, I'm not in the right spot. I need to deploy. And so I got 
taken out of my unit and sent to do 24 hour CQ for about three months as a punishment for jumping my chain of command. And um, from there, uh, JSOC Joint Special Operations was looking for interrogators to go to Afghanistan. And I interviewed for that and thank God I got picked to go there. So I mean, it's, it's a very rigorous testing, you know, you go in front of a psychiatrist, you have to answer a bunch of all these weird questions, you have to go through medical testing. And then an interview, you know, sitting in front of six other interrogators and the psychiatrist that you just spoke to for three hours, and they decide if you're, you know, mentally capable of doing this deployment. And they said, yes. Mm -hmm. And so what year was that? This was 2006. Okay. And so what was that deployment like? Well, it was interesting. So um, I got in country with two other women interrogators. Um, One spoke Russian, one spoke Spanish. Um, So I never used Russian in the military. Um, We used translators. Um, I was in Bagram. And about a week and a half, two weeks into the deployment, I felt really sick. And I didn't know if it was a malaria medicine or what. And one of the girls asked me, well, could you be pregnant? And I said, no, you know, we do all the testing beforehand. And they're like, well, just for our own sake and for your own, let's go get a test at the PX. So I did and it was expired, but it said I was pregnant. And I was like, ah, shit. So I had to go to my commander at the time. And in the meantime, you know, I, you know, we went to the Bagram prison, which is a huge prison. Um, and, you know, did some testing interrogations there with POWs that had been there for years. Um, you know, so I'm just getting a taste of it. And then, you know, as I'm seeing the positive pregnancy test, I'm like, oh, this is about to be taken away from me. So my commander said I needed to go get a blood work test done. And, um, I went to the, you know, the little medical unit there and it came back positive. So when I went back to my commander, I said, look, you know, let me stay. You can, you know, I'll get all of my OB stuff done here. Um, You know, I just, I've, I've waited so long to get here. Just let me stay. And and unfortunately that was in March, like right at the height of malaria season. And I had to take the medicine. And if I did that, I would have killed my daughter. So um, about two weeks later, I was sent home and a month later was when I walked out of the army. And so how come you left the army completely? Because my husband at the time was a Marine in Camp Lejeune. And so we lived about three hours away from each other. And um, I didn't want us both to stay in. And at that time, I had struggled so much with, you know, the unit that I was assigned to, I was going right back to there to shove more paperwork and give um, security clearances to E8s that had like three DUIs and were pissed that their security clearance was taking too long, you know, as if it's my fault, not their fault. I was like, nah, this isn't for me. So I'm going to get out, go to school and then be a stay at home mom. And what did you go to school for? Psychology. Oh, interesting. And so how was that? Um, it was, it was interesting. I felt like Billy Madison, you know, I was the oldest one there, you know, in college classes, I did a lot online, but while, um, so when I got out, my ex-husband was deployed, he was on, um, a Navy ship and, um, didn't get home until my daughter was a month old, but, uh, it was fun. I always love learning. I always love pushing myself. I don't just want, you know, want to sit around and not do anything. So I figured, well, use my GI bill and get a degree. 
I ended up getting my AA. It was better for me. It was a better headspace for me to do, to come home and focus on myself and school and, you know, prepare to be a mom. Cause I went from doing all this fun shit to, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to have a kid and it's going to completely change my life. So you mentioned you did the degree and then you were a stay-at-home mom. So how long did you stay home for after that? 12 years. In the meantime, you know, I, I ended up getting an AA. Um, I went to personal trainer school because um, I had decided that for one, I, I knew nothing about fitness. Like I could max army PT test. I had like, I think the max is 300, but you can go above that. I always had like 340s, 350s, 360s, but I knew nothing about fitness and I was overweight. So I always had to get taped. I didn't know anything about food, working out. And so I decided, well, you know, um, not a lot of women, but some women, when they get pregnant, they just kind of, um, they don't know how to come back after the pregnancy and they keep the baby weight on. And I was like, I, you know, I've always been athletic. I've just never known how to do it right. Let me go to personal training school. So I went to Orlando, um, five days a week and would come home on the weekends for three months and, uh, became a personal trainer in 2007 and raised two daughters in the meantime. I'm just going to go back for one second. So you mentioned getting taped and I've heard other people talk about the tape test, but I'm Canadian and I have no idea what that means. Can you explain it? So the the army has this very archaic way of measuring a person's health and that's through BMI. And so they measure your neck and they measure your waist and your hips. And, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. I got a big booty. I always have. It's genetic. It's my grandmother's. And, um, and you know, I have a tiny waist. So if you have a tiny waist and big hips, they're going to see you as being overweight over BMI. So I think the heaviest I was in the army was probably 155 pounds. I'm like 126 now. So, um, but I could, you know, I could max all of the PT stuff. So I didn't understand what was, what was wrong. And it was just, honestly, the difference was food and how I worked out. So yeah, it's, they pretty much measure it on, and the guys, they measure their stomach and their neck. And some people have super big necks and, you know, big stomachs and they're fine, but men with little necks and, you know, big or little necks and um, an average size waist, they would get gigged for being overweight as well. So what happens if you, if you are overweight, what do they do? So they, um, you have a month to pretty much so if you're overweight they make you make tape and as long as you make tape you're fine and I always did barely but I did and if not you would go to like remedial physical training so you would work out at 5 a.m before class and then you would work out again at you know 4 35 p.m after class until you could get back in shape without really teaching them how to do it right. It was more of like a punishment as opposed to let me educate you on how we could get, you know, how we can help you be fitter and eat better. That's so interesting because we don't really have anything like that. I mean, in the Canadian military, if you fail the fitness test on your basic training, they'll put you on sort of a platoon where you just focus on fitness and then you get another chance to to try and pass the fitness test, but they don't it, it doesn't have anything to do 
with your body. So if you could be as big as you want, if you pass the fitness test, then then you pass the fitness test. Which is strange, right? And then people get so frustrated, especially in the, the higher ups, like, you know, why don't you know better? Well, because I don't know better. I, I don't know unless I'm taught. So um, yeah, it's just, you know, this mass, you know, PT sessions where it's really not individualized is wrong. So, and I didn't know better. And this was back in, you know, I joined in 2003, I got out in 2006. So this, you know, there was no CrossFit, there was no, you know, um, like I said, I was doing power 90 before. So um, yeah, I just didn't know anything. And so I, I made damn sure that I wasn't the mom that was like, oh, I, you know, I had kids, it's okay. No, I wanted to be the person that was an example of like, oh, she's a mom, and she can work out like this. And she can, you know, eat right and still look, you know, younger than she is. That was my whole goal. And so after you did the personal training course, how did your workout routine or programming style change? Oh, it changed completely. Um, for one, I, I didn't even know like how to work out at all. I would lift biceps before I lifted legs or, you know, you, you know, you start at the big muscle groups and then you work lower. I didn't know about splitting body groups up. Um, and I really got into what at the time we called metabolic conditioning while in personal training school, which really ended up being hit style stuff. You know, what some people only know as CrossFit and it's not just CrossFit, it's metabolic conditioning. And that completely changed my body, you know, being an athlete my whole life, um, getting on a treadmill and then going and lifting weights just doesn't do it for my body. It's not what my body likes. It craves that stress. It craves that, you know, hitting that red line where you're just uncomfortable and staying at that red line for a long time is what my body craves. And so, um, I really, I really took off with that and then teaching it to other people, not just, you know, you come to me for training and I don't teach you how to do it. That's, that's just not the type of trainer I am. I want you to be able to do this without me and understand why I'm making you suffer this way, you know, cause that's, that's what I would want. I don't want to do shit just to do it. You know, that's, uh, that's not what I like. I would like to know the whys. And so I always wanted to teach people the why. What made you decide to go from doing that to becoming a firefighter? So being a stay-at-home mom for 12 years, and while this was happening, my ex-husband was going through fire school. He went through the fire academy, got hired, and I just lost my sense of self and I lost my purpose. And ever since I was little, I've always loved helping people. So I've always had this sense of service. I just didn't know it had a word to it. Um and I was just on autopilot. It felt, you know, there was nothing in my life that was fulfilling me other than, you know, being a mom to my daughters. And one of them is special needs. She's very high functioning autistic, but she was an extremely hard baby. And if I had her first, I'd only have one. Um, but she required a lot of therapy. Um, I ended up getting her hooked up with a nonprofit that gave her a service dog that I got to train for a year with this nonprofit. And I just felt like I was pouring from an empty cup and I thought, okay, it's time to fill mine. And, um, you know, hearing about all the cool stuff that my ex-husband was getting to do. And I was like, well, why can't I do something like that? You know? Um, 
And I went to an award ceremony for his department. And I, I knew a lot of the, the women in his department and they were really awesome women, very good firefighters, very good medics. Um, and it, it sounds so silly, but out of about 50 awards, not a single woman went up there to get an award for anything, not a unit award, not a you know PT award, nothing. And for whatever reason, that pissed me off enough to, to tell him that I wanted to try it out and signed up for fire school the very next day and was in fire school, I think three months later. And how did he feel about your decision? Oh, he knew I would be good at it. Yeah, he was fully supportive because um, I had supported him for so long and it was an easy decision for him. So what I ended up doing is um, there is a station in, it's uh, Gainesville, Florida and Gainesville Fire Department. There is a station that's notorious for like doing the Murph every single Monday in gear. And they were, you know, I knew a bunch of the guys and not only were they good firemen, but they were good people and good athletes. And I thought, okay, well, well if anybody's going to prepare me for fire school, it's going to be them. And I would go once or twice a week and work out with them and run calls with them. And I was more than prepared for fire school because they, they kicked my ass. Awesome. And then, so how long did fire school last? Fire school was uh, three months. We had a hurricane right at the end of it. So that prolonged it a little bit longer, but it was three months. The timing was terrible um, because it was, I think June or July was when we started in Florida and it's a hundred and plus degrees with a hundred, you know, almost a hundred percent humidity. Um, and we started with 18 people in our class. I'm always finding myself to be the only female. I think I'm a glutton for punishment, but I was the only female in there and we only graduated six by the end of it. So people were dropping out for, I think we had two drop for, um, you know, they couldn't pass the test. Um, and we had several pass out or, uh, drop out because the heat, they were just heat casualties and they couldn't recover after. So there were so many times where, you know, instead of eating, I would go in the showers and just sit in the cold shower and then shove something in my mouth on the way to, you know, training in the afternoon because it was really tough. Did you have any issues being the only female or was the group supportive of you? For the most part, I, they treated me like their own um, until they made me a squad leader. The instructors really like to take people that try to fly under the radar and put them in these you know, positions to see if they're going to sink or swim. I knew one of the instructors. Um, he is a reti- retired lieutenant out of um, a neighboring department. And he works with me on my department now. He just is a backseat firefighter for shits and giggles because he enjoys the job so much. But I think he wanted to challenge me and knew I was up for the challenge. And um, there were a couple of younger-ish guys in Um, my squad that I don't know if it was like they didn't want to hear it coming from a female you know because I was just directing information hey go tell them to do this go tell your squad to do that and for whatever reason I think it was just it just pissed them off that it was coming from either a woman or me like I'm not for everybody you know I have a very strong personality but I'm a team player and I'm gonna work my ass off Um, so I really don't know what the issue was but there was definitely like we even had like a a powwow with one of the instructors and myself and one of the the guys that I was having a problem with. And he let us have like 
a shouting match and getting shit out and then getting over it, going back to business as usual. I find sometimes in sort of the the male dominated world, like you said, it's get it out and then go back to business as usual. Whereas I went to nursing school and the placements at the hospital, I found it was almost like such a like a catty environment at some points and it was almost like walking on eggshells and I was like there's like too many women clawing at each other whereas at the time I was still in the reserves so I was in the the diving world which was very like male dominated and there's no sort of behind your back cattiness like I mean there's you know gossip and whatever but if someone has a problem they'll just tell you and then you figure it out and then go about your business after that. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, that's one thing that I do like about men is that they have something to say for the most part, unless you're a coward, is you're going to say it to their face and just get it out there, you know, and the good old days where you could go out back, duke it out, come back, shake hands, move on. That is one thing that I like about working with men is, is that part. It's not all great, but that part is for the most part great, like I said, unless you're a coward. Yeah, the way... They deal with conflict is is a bit different. I'm curious too for you. Have you ever done that like a Myers Briggs test for your personality? I do. So this was a long time ago. My um, my ex husband's mom had me take one, and I don't remember what I got though. Okay, I was, I'm just curious because I'm an INTJ, which is apparently super rare for women. And you know, listening to you, I'm like, oh, I feel like you probably have some of the same traits. So I was curious whether you were the same or not. I'll have to take it again and I'll I'll follow up with you on that because I would love to know. And so after your training, like how hard is it or what's the process to find a job as a firefighter? For me, it was it was easy because our department was growing. The the department that I wanted to work for was growing so quick. Going into it, training with everybody from Gainesville, my goal was to work with my ex-husband's department. But once I went to fire school and then immediately after had to go to EMT school, I really fell in love with some of the people in my department, especially the instructors. And so I ended up switching there. Um, And it was really easy. I mean, I I was hired and on the job within less than a year. It hasn't always been that way for everybody because there was a a job freeze here, a hiring freeze. Um, But I, I think just how everything planned out, it was just pure luck that I got hired so quickly. And I I think I remember on the Olympus podcast, you were talking about being scared of heights and scared of being on the ladder for the rescue crew. So explain that to me. So um, we had a new station that was being built and um, they were asked, it was going to be a tower. So the difference between a ladder and a tower is a ladder is just a straight ladder all the way up. And a tower has a platform at the end, so you could get on the truck, you know, walk to the platform, and then the platform will raise. It's much safer, um, but it's still really high. And so they kind of sent out a countywide email that said, hey, we're looking for people that would like to ride on this truck. Please email us back so we can staff it. I did not email. I was not interested um, but, um, I remember I was out of town and this was right before COVID hit. Actually, I was out of town on vacation and my battalion chief called me and said, look, uh, just want to let you know, nobody applied to be the firefighter on this shift on this truck. So you're it. Cause I was the lowest man on the totem pole per se. 
And uh, yeah, that was it. I was voluntold. And it ended up being one of the funnest trucks I've ever ridden on in my career. I was there two and a half years. What made it so fun? Just pushing myself. I mean, we went on a majority of every single structure fire call. Um, We still got to do the cool stuff. But I loved, I don't know, I just loved my truck. I loved setting it up. It was very meticulous. It was very um, mindless, but also challenging myself. And it just looks cool. It just, you're up on the roof. You're, you know, I, you get to cut a roof open with a chainsaw, you know, you get to, it, it just looked awesome. And it was a ton of fun. And I had a great crew, which made it a lot more fun. We all worked out extremely hard and pushed each other and, um, the area was getting busier. So we had some really interesting calls, but I just loved being known as a tower firefighter. Awesome. So then moving into, I guess, some more difficult aspects of the job. So we talked a little bit before we started recording, but in terms of mental health, what are some of the most difficult parts of being a firefighter? Uh, one of the most difficult parts is being away from your family or your, you know, the place where you're most comfortable for 24 hours. That's a long time. Like if you go through an eight hour workday, at least you'll be able to handle whatever it is at five o'clock, six o'clock when you get home. But especially when you have families and you're gone from seven in the morning till really nine the very next day it seems like all shit hits the fan on the day that you're working. Not only that, it's you're gone for so long and it's stressful on everybody that it can really tax your relationships with your kids, with your spouse, um, you know, or whoever else. And it's beyond your control. And so it's really hard to understand that aspect. It's also hard for spouses of firefighters to understand what that feels like when they've never done it. I'm lucky. My fiance has uh, been in this department a year longer than I have. So we can come home, we can decompress, you know, but we can also relate to each other because we worked in the same station. Um, Let's see, I've almost been here five years and we worked together for almost two years in the same station together as friends. Um, So it's not being able to relate to that person and for them to understand the stress. And it's like, you know, I remember that feeling because I was, you know, a stay at home mom of a fireman. I know what it feels like. Well, you get to be away and you don't have to deal with all this shit. Well, he's dealing with stress on his own. And not only that feeling helpless because he's not there to take care of it. Um, you know, the other thing that can be really stressful is, you know, accumulation of traumatic calls we see. Um, for me, that's not the biggest mental health issue in my life, just for me personally. But um, there are some calls that will change you. And there are some calls that are extremely difficult. And that's why I love working with a good crew so much is because that helps. So if you don't know something, somebody else there is going to know something it's, it's all chaotic. It's all quick, you know, and at the time you're so busy just doing your job that you don't really have time to process stuff. Um, so it's nice for me to be able to come home and talk to, you know, my fiance about anything that's been difficult. Um, and my crew is great. We have extremely dark humor. Um, you know, one of your questions was how do, how do I cope with, 
you know, calls like that, it's, you know, usually we joke about it afterwards. Um, that wouldn't make sense to people or would seem inappropriate. But I think whatever a person has to do, as long as it's not harming themselves to help with something like that, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. I think that's very common, you know, in the military as well, with using that dark humor um, to cope with stressful things. And what else, like, how do you help mitigate that stress with your family? Do you have certain things that you do, like spending extra time or doing extra activities with the kids or your fiance, or how does that work? So when I leave the fire station, I do not bring work home with me. I don't think about it at all. Second I'm in my truck, I'm going home. And we love our home time. We love you know, being with our kids. I have two teenage daughters. He has an infant daughter. Um, and it's all about them and all about us. And we love to, um, you know, go out. We love to take trips. We love to um, just be around each other. Um, you know, we're very active. But our biggest thing is we don't think about or talk about work when we get home. And that's the biggest thing, unless we're struggling with it. You know, we'll obviously talk about struggles or things that pissed us off, um, but we don't marinate in that. We get it out first thing in the morning when we get off, like we both got off this morning. Um, we had some things, you know, to talk about from the shifts for about 30 minutes and then it's done. Like now it's our time. It's our family time. And so how many days on and days off do you have? What does the, your shift rotation look like? So it's 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Yep. And our shifts start 8 a.m. and they end at 8 a.m. the next day. And then, so if you do start to notice yourself having any negative thoughts or getting too stressed out, do you have a sort of mental process of telling yourself to stop or do you go to a workout or I guess what sort of things do you do in that scenario? I'm really hard at telling myself to stop because I'm, I'm an overthinker for one and I'm extremely hard on myself. Um, workouts do definitely help. Um, and my crew is, we're really good at picking each other up when we can see somebody else is struggling. So we will either, you know, um, our thing around the station is we love to scare each other. So we'll hide, like I like to hide in the truck, even, you know, coming back from a call, I'll hide under the steering wheel on the driver's side and scare my driver coming in. And, you know, we do it at the station. So, you know, we really just try to keep it light at the station Um, like I said, I'm extremely terrible at, um, combating negative thoughts. So, um, I've gotten better at, you know, texting my fiance or letting my crew know like, Hey, I need to go do a workout. Do you guys want to come? Or I'm just not having a good day. Um, and you would think that me being such a mental health advocate, I'd be a lot better at it, but I'm terrible at taking my own advice. So, um, yeah, I still deal with it, but a lot of it just has to do with, um, you know, talking it out with the person that means the most to me. And that's my fiance. Talk to me about sort of some of the more difficult aspects that don't have to do with the calls, like what we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah. So this one's hard to talk about because I don't want to think like, I don't want anybody to think that the fire department is just this incredibly toxic environment, but there are some traits that some people have, definitely not everybody in the department that need to change because I think it is the main reason for the mental health issues 
in the fire department. I don't know about, you know, the police, but I can tell you for certain and through my own experience that it's the gossip, the rumors, the insecurities, the projection that we feel for some reason that we are allowed into people's personal lives and allowed to bring people's personal life issues into the department. And look, if I've screwed up at work, talk about me all day. I do not care. Talk about me. But don't talk about my personal life. Don't try to, you know, we never know what anybody's going through in their personal life because a lot of us, we go to work to escape just for 24 hours, the shit that's going on at home, whatever it is, we know what we're doing. It's easy. We show up, we do the same stuff every single day. The calls might be different, but we know what we're getting. 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. I'm a firefighter on an engine. I know what I'm doing and that's easy. But when you have people that um, for whatever reason feel insecure or they're just unhappy in their own lives that they have to, you know, talk about and, um, gossip about shit that might be hurting me or might be hurting, you know, the other people that I work with. I have a huge problem with that. And I have actually not the station I am now, but left the dining room table because somebody that wasn't normally in our shift came and started talking shit about somebody else. That apartment. And I just can't stand it. I don't think that's, you know, I don't know if it's because we spend so much time together. You know, we spend a third of our time of our lives with these people. Um, but for me, it's like, you know, life is hard enough, especially when you're dealing with marriages and, you know, um, my Lieutenant right now, his wife is due any moment, second baby, like he could just get a phone, you know, he could have gotten a phone call yesterday that said, Hey, it's go time, which is stressful. And, you know, it was just the holidays, which can be stressful. It's, I think that people, they don't have boundaries. And so they feel like they can talk about somebody else's misery to almost drown out the misery that's going on in their own life. And it's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And it, it isolates people. It makes them not trust anybody. Um, I have just learned to trust the people at my new station and I love them to death. They're very trustworthy people. Um, but anybody else, um, not so much. It's, I go to job, you know, I go to work to do a job and I get paid to do the job, but I just want to get back home. And what do you think would be the solution or some ways to combat that behavior or to put a stop to it? It really is so simple and it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but people need to be kind. It's that simple. It's, you know, if you want to help this person or if this person is a part of your crew or not part of your crew and you want them to be an asset, wouldn't you want to help them if you feel like they may be struggling or instead of, or if you know this person's going through something, you know, even if you don't reach out, don't make the problem worse by talking to other people about it and never going to that person and saying, hey, like, I heard this, is this going on? Because uh, if you don't, to me, you're a pussy. And I, I don't have any tolerance for that. Um, I've stopped people from gossiping. Um, you know, like I said, if, you know, when we sit at the dining room table every evening and we talk about people, it's usually about 
work ethic or funny stuff that has happened to us or, hey, do you remember this time? Or what about this call? Never once do we ever talk about people's personal lives or anything, any struggle that they could be going on that doesn't have anything to do with work. It's so simple. It's like, I don't think anyone would ever want other people to be talking about them. So why would they talk about other people? But for some reason they do. Yeah, it's, you know, misery loves company. And unfortunately, you know, there are some people in this department that um, I wouldn't want to be known as the person that's a gossiper. Like I wouldn't want to sit at a table with people that I knew I was going to be the topic of conversation when I left. Unfortunately, I work with some of them. Um, I'm able to get past that because like I said, it's a job. I get paid just like everybody else, but my goal is to get home. I don't go to work thinking I'm this amazing firefighter. And that's why I post all of this stuff about, you know, fire. Um, I, I seriously have zero ego because I don't have enough experience. Um, I really haven't fought that much fire. Um, I'm just an EMT, so I don't do paramedicine. Um, I'm a good helper. I can hold things. I can do, you know, good compressions. Um, but my thing is, and the reason why I post so much about mental health and workouts is because I know what it feels like to be in hell. So why wouldn't I want to share that experience to help people know, for one, that they're not alone going through it? Because, you know, I always tell people, for whatever reason, I have some sort of a following on Instagram. And why wouldn't I want to use that to make the world a better place. I know that sounds so cheesy, but it's true. It's, you know, it's hard enough for me. And I think I'm a pretty strong, mentally capable person. And, and, uh, you know, some days I look back on the stuff that I've been through and I'm like, I can't believe I'm standing. I can't believe I'm still alive. Uh, Cause that was really tough, but for other people to not consider the humanity of another person to me is sickening. Um, I don't have a tolerance for it. So it almost makes me want to push against, you know, or push for, you know, people to be able to talk about their mental health, about being, you know, even in, you know, abusive relationships or, you know, anything that really doesn't have to do with work per se, but, you know, it adds up. Yeah, I think it's awesome that you that you are using your following in that way. And you do have quite a big following on social media. So how did all of that happen? I honestly don't know. Um, it, it seems like it happened out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, I'd always post my workouts when I was at work. And that's just the personal trainer in, in me. It's like, you know, we have all of this equipment that we were given to with grants, which has been wonderful. But nobody knows how to program a workout. And not only that, it's like, you know, we're at work for 24 hours. So it seems like we have all of this time to work out. And sometimes we do, but you don't want to work out to the point where, you're in the middle of a workout, you have nothing left. And all of a sudden you get toned out to a fire, which happened to me one time. And I never did it again because I was dying on the way to that call. And it was a legitimate structure fire. Um, but I just want to get, it's like, Hey, I'm doing this workout. Maybe somebody else would like to do it. So I would post it. Um, and then um, a couple of years ago, I started volunteering with a nonprofit um, that was that helps veterans with PTSD or any sort of injury to kind of overcome and get back to some sense of normalcy and, um, you know, work on their self-esteem. And it, 
that gave me almost the green light to talk about mental health and how important that is. And I just, I just think there's something very sincere about a person that can say, it may seem like I have my life together and I'm this alpha female and I'm a go-getter and, you know, I like to suffer is one of the questions that you said, but I am still human and I have gone through some shit that I wouldn't wish on anybody. So why not share that for one? So people know, well, that happened to me and I don't feel like I can talk about it or, oh, it does happen to people you wouldn't think that it would happen to. And I just want to give people, if nothing else, just a sounding board, like a, hey, you know, I'm kind of struggling here. Can you help me? Like, if I were to to look back and think of all of the direct messages I've gotten on Instagram for from people, especially in regards to the mental health, people would be very surprised on on how much people are hurting and they just want to know that somebody else has gone through it too, to say that it's okay and it's going to be okay. But I always tell them it's not going to be easy. This is not easy just because I talk about it and I'm super big on it. I struggle too, almost daily. So I'm, I just want to give them just a safe space and know like, no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to be real on here just because that's who I am. And I'm, I'm tired of not tired. Um, it, it just learning about suicide, especially with us losing two brothers in a six month time frame this past year, it breaks my heart. And I don't think we talk about everything that leads up to it enough. Yeah. Calls can be bad, but it's not just that. We have in Canada, we have a one of the big telecommunications companies is called Bell, and they sort of did this thing called Bell Let's Talk Day, which is on the one hand, it's good because it's for mental health and they do a bunch of fundraising. On the other hand, it's sort of all these other companies started doing it, and it's almost just like this virtue signaling. And so they put out, you know, every year on that day how they're they're so supportive. But then you hear the stories from employees of certain companies, and they're like, well, this company is posting about how they're so supportive. Yet when I was going through something, this is how they treated me, you know? So every year I'm kind of just post like this day is important, but don't forget about the other 364 days of the year where you should be talking about it. It's not just this one day to post on social media that you're, you're so supportive of mental health and then just to, to forget about it for the rest of the year. Yeah. It's not a fad. It's not sexy. There's nothing sexy about suicide. Um, there's nothing, you know, um, trendy about it. And it's more important than people think. So, you know, my big thing is just be kind to each other. And just remember that we're all human, like we, we all are humans that just happen to work for this fire department. And I think that human aspect is what a lot of people forget. It's, you know, you just get in this like little micro environment, you know, kind of like when you get stuck where you grew up, you don't know that there's more out there. And I think that people identify so much as I'm a fireman or I am a this or I am a that, that they forget that we are all just people with issues and families and shit that are just trying to do a good job. I'm not trying to show off. I'm not trying to get attention. I am trying to help people with 
the platform that I've been given and the tools that I've been given and the unfortunate and sometimes fortunate bullshit situations I've had in my life to just help make it a teeny bit easier for people. And I just want to do my job well. I don't think I'm an amazing firefighter. I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm mediocre, if not just a smidge right above that. But um, yeah, I, I'm not a firefighter. I'm a mom. I'm a fiance. I just happen to work for a fire department. So I watched a really cool video of you on YouTube. It was your first kill bow hunting. So tell me how you got involved in bow hunting. I uh, volunteered for a nonprofit a couple of years ago. And then through that nonprofit, I got linked up with Black Rifle Coffee. They were um, very generous for this nonprofit and took a couple of our people out to shoot archery, you know, at their, this one I think was in Utah, but the next year I got invited to go out and shoot um, at their ranch in San Antonio. And so Robbie from Blood Origins, he found out that he was looking for a female veteran to do a story on. And, um, he asked a a buddy of his, Hey, do you have anybody in mind? And they threw my name out there, but I wasn't a hunter. I'd never been a hunter. I didn't grow up. I was an athlete. I picked stuff up. I put things down and, um, yeah, so we got linked up there and, uh, Robbie was gracious enough. And, um, a friend of his Fred, um, out in this plantation, they, gave me a very special opportunity to have my first hunt. And uh, it was pretty amazing. I I didn't walk home with anything. You know, I I shot a pig and never found it. And um, it was just a really cool experience, especially the lifelong friendships that I will forever share with Robbie and Fred was amazing. And archery at the time for me was a way for me to shut out all the noise that was going on in my life. Because if you don't, you're not going to be good at it. You know, you have to focus. There is definitely a process that goes to it. And unfortunately, because of the abusive relationship that I left a couple of years ago, I have yet to pick that bow back up. Um, Cause I started shooting with him and um, right after I left that relationship, I went to the range to, you know, try to go shut out all of the noise. And I had a full blown panic attack and I've never had a panic attack in my life. And one of my best friends was like, okay, we need to get out of here. You know, it was just, um, yeah. So I, I haven't picked it up since and it's been over a year and a half. Do you think you ever will, or is that chapter sort of closed at this point? I don't ever want to say never, and I'm not doing it to spite anybody. You know, that person has zero control over my life right now. But um, before it was, it filled a void that I needed and it helped me in that time. But I have so much going on now um, that is good in my life that it just isn't a thought. So I'm not intentionally not doing it. Um, I just, I don't have the want to do it right now. So in that video, you said that you enjoy suffering. What does that mean to you? So I know I sound like a broken record, but I have gone through um, quite a bit in my life. And I feel like if I can control it and I can put myself in that position, that is where I excel. I love doing insanely hard workouts and I like making them last forever. 
because, um, you know, some people self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. I, I do with pain, um, fortunately and unfortunately. And I think it's the most healthy way to do that. So as long as I'm in control, I can't control what other people do. Um, I can't control some of the situations that I'm in, but I can control my own personal healthy suffering. And that's what I love to do. And it makes me a better athlete. It makes me, you know, more capable for my job. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. But um, for me, hitting, you know, knowing where I can't go any further and going for another 30 minutes on a workout to me is a win. So I just like to challenge myself and I'll talk shit to myself like the old David Goggins. Like I'll, I'll call myself every name in the book. You know, you want to quit, don't you go ahead and quit, you know? Um, but being able to push past that is how I grow mentally and physically. Yeah, I follow um, Courtney DeWalter and her ultra running career. She's the best athlete that most people have never heard of, but she calls it going into the pain cave. And I think that's that's such a cool little saying and a, a neat way of looking at it. But I mean, you know, she runs like over 200 miles at a time. So it's absolutely insane. Yeah. And she she has a lot of time to be in her own head. So she has to be extremely mentally strong. And that is very impressive. For me, it's too much time to think like I sometimes my I don't enjoy being in my head for five minutes. So to do that for 200 and 200 miles is something that's quite extraordinary. Oh, yeah. And just like sleep deprived everything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You got where you got nothing left but your mental aspect because all the physical wants to stop and for her to just excel in that and feed off of it. Ah, that's that's the suffering that I kind of like. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so just the last couple of questions here. So what are your future goals career wise or in your personal life? So the career goals are, I would eventually like to work full-time for a nonprofit, serving in some capacity. I love serving my community. I love the crew that I have, but I know what I can bring to the table. I have a lot of experience with nonprofits. I have, you know, personal experience with being a veteran and a firefighter. And I know how much this, these communities are hurting. And the first responder community doesn't have nearly as much available to them as the veteran community does. So um, my goal would be able to do what I love and what I know I am best at and be able to make a career out of it, um, which would, you know, put firefighting at an end. That would be closing a chapter. Um, And then personally, honestly, I'm going to be 40 next year. So in March, I'm going to be 40 and I am at a place in my life where it doesn't seem like it can get any better. Like finally, I feel like I'm over the hump and now I'm just now cruising on autopilot. So I would just love to see my daughters continue to push their boundaries and support them. And I love enjoying time with them. My oldest just turned 16, so I don't have that much more time with her before she feels like she's an adult and can go off and do things. And then, you know, I have a year and a half year old. So right now in my personal life, there is nothing that I would change, but I think it would make my life that much more fulfilled if I would be able to work in a nonprofit capacity. Awesome. 
And the last question, what advice would you give to women looking to join the military or also looking to become firefighters? That is a good question. And I've thought about that for several hours. Um, My biggest advice would be to try and know who you are before you go into it. So you have something to hold on to when you feel like you're not good enough. You know, going into a male-dominated field is already extremely hard because for one, you stick out like a sore thumb. And two, there's almost like this weird thing where it's like, I want you to be able to perform at my level, but don't do it and then talk about it. Or if you're you know, if you reach my level and then you exceed my level, that's too much, you know? So we're kind of constantly being told, okay, well, you're not good enough or you're too good or, um, so yeah, if you know who you are before and you can hold on to that and remember that when you have no idea what people really think about you and what their issues are with how you're performing, you got nothing to prove to anybody but yourself. Just show up, do your job well, um, know what you're going into. So know that it's going to be a little bit difficult and don't do anything to make it even more difficult. You know, meet the standard, um, exceed the standard when you can and if you can. And uh, be nice to people. You know, don't, don't be that woman that goes in there and feels like she has to compete with every other woman because we're in this male dominated field. They don't need our attention. Like, fuck them, honestly, like go in there just to be good at your job, not to do anything better than anybody else, especially women support each other. It's hard enough. Don't be an asshole. And that's it. That is very solid advice. Thank you so much for this podcast today. And for those who want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? I just have Instagram. I don't have anything else. It's um, Mother of Dragons, M-T-H-R underscore of dragons. Awesome. So we'll put a link to that in the notes and obviously in my Instagram posts. So again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so awesome talking to you. Thank you for taking your time. I really appreciate it. And I followed you for a while. So this was quite an honor to show it pop up on your, uh, your Instagram that you wanted to interview me this year. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.